Um, Today's reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 26, verses 1 to 25. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all of these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac opened the wells that had been dug during the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Asak because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well.
This is the word of the Lord. Well done, Ollie. You prevailed. You overcame the might of the car horn. Right, let's pray that God would speak to us from the scriptures. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. And today we particularly thank you for the life of Isaac. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn about how to follow you effectively through his life. In Jesus' name, amen. In this sermon series, we're looking at a number of Old Testament characters, and they're not necessarily the pin-up uh, lives that we're looking at, but they are all significant lives. Many of the standout names in the scriptures are big names precisely because they accomplish something huge. And um, so when I think back, you think of people like Moses or King David or Jonah or Elijah or Daniel or Paul or Jesus or Peter, and you could make a film of their lives because they do such extraordinary things. But not every hero or heroine in scripture is like this. And the person that we're focusing on today isn't. And frankly, I'm so glad that he's accessible. He's much closer to you and me. I, I mean, it, it's not something I stop to think about too often, but the likelihood of anyone writing your biography is slim if it's going to be like just based on your Christian biography. I love reading Christian biographies. They lift my faith, they raise my hope, uh, they bring huge encouragement but how many Jackie Pullingers in the world are there? Uh, how many Hudson Taylors are there? Etc., uh, etc. Et and we soon come to see, uh, and the moment we step back and think about it, the kingdom of God relies on the everyday faithfulness of ordinary people to keep going and to keep growing. And they are really important. It's actually a bit of a puzzle. Why? is Isaac a big name in the scriptures? Because he is a big name. He's mentioned 12 times in the whole of the scripture alongside Abraham and Jacob. It becomes almost like a catchphrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the chances are you can think of many things in the life of Abraham and many things about the life of Jacob, but very few things in the life of Isaac that make him stand out. Particularly if I'm a bit mean and say rule out the things in Isaac's life that he wasn't actually responsible for. Because he is quite well known for an incredible birth. He, he was born to Abraham and to Sarah when they were past it. But you could hardly say that he brought it on. You know, he didn't have a big role in that. He, he is famous for the provision of his wife, Rebecca. But Again, you can hardly say he brought that about. There is, in fact, only one chapter in the whole of Scripture which records stuff that Isaac himself does. And that is Genesis chapter 26. And that's what we're going to look at. And the whole theme of this sermon is that it's our everyday habits that prove highly significant. 
And Isaac's everyday habits, reassuringly, are within grasp of each of us. And I'm going to share with you three things that I think will make a world of difference if we incorporated them into our life as Isaac incorporated into his. Now, the first, first thing I'm falling on is the fact that Isaac deliberately, deliberately made space in his life to meet with God. It had become a lifestyle choice. Just outside the boundaries of our chapter, in Genesis 24, 63, there is a little phrase that sends rabbis into ecstasy of discussion. And the reason they love it is because it only comes once in the whole of scripture. And it comes at the end of the story of when Isaac, uh, well, a, a wife is found for Isaac. And Rebecca is making her way towards where Isaac lives. And there's this enigmatic phrase, Isaac went out in the field one evening to meditate. And it's that phrase, to meditate, that is only used once. What was he doing in the field? Well, if you Google it, there are pages and pages and pages of speculation. But if you boil down to what the best guess is, and actually I'm a bit intimidated, I see a Hebrew scholar in the congregation, but I've done my research, so I am fortified with the knowledge of Google. The, the best guess is he was talking to God. The best guess is he was talking to God. In chapter 25, it's more specific, which helps us. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless and God gave him twins. And in our chapter, chapter 26, Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Friends, this is a simple but very profound point. The kingdom of God requires us to make space in our lives every day to call on the name of the Lord. I, I used to live within half a mile of a theological college. That's a place which kind of processes and develops wannabe vicars. And quite often they would come to me to chat about, uh, so what do I need to be doing to have a fruitful life as a vicar? Or they would ring me five, 10, 15 years into their service and we would kind of do a spiritual review. And frankly, it doesn't matter if it's the Archbishop of Canterbury or anyone, the one essential, the one of the essentials is you must make it part of your lifestyle to spend time with God alone. Time where you give him your undivided attention. And in saying that, I know that most of us here have heard that before. And, and it would be easier for you, you'd find it more challenging if I said you must go for a five mile run every day. But it isn't like that. What you must do, what I must do is make space in my life every day, deliberately, intentionally to commune with God in whatsoever form that takes. And that's within everyone's reach, isn't it? Just to give you a helping hand, do you know God's telephone number? You do. Well done. Yes. 333. Jeremiah 333. Call to me and I'll answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you don't know. It's not a 999 call, it's a 333 call. Jeremiah 333. Built on Jesus' life model. You know, his disciples observed about him very early, while it was still dark, he went out to a certain place to pray. And that means he had a lifestyle habit of a time of day and a place to pray. 
It's easier said than done, but it needs to be done. And if I could just add a little PS to this, because there's, there's a habit I've noticed amongst some of my friends, that when their children get older, their children quite often turn to them and say, Mum, Dad, would you pray for me? I've got this particular challenge. And the interesting thing is that their children often turn to them for that kind of prayer help when they're not routinely praying themselves and they're not routinely following Jesus themselves. And I want to say a little seed of a thought here. Don't let your children outsource prayer to you as if you can carry them. The first time they ask you to do that, I think you need to reply something along the lines, of course I'll pray for you, but we need to pray together and you need to learn to pray alone. God wants us to include him in our lives. That's the first thing I see in the life of Isaac. But there's a second thing that comes pretty quickly from it. He chose obedience, though it was costly, over expedience, which would have been easy. So when he made space for God and God spoke to him, he says yes. And I get this from verse 1. There was a famine in the land and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I'll bless you. I'll give you all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. Now what God is asking Isaac to do here is counterintuitive. It doesn't align with common sense and it takes trust to obey what God has said. Stay put, trust in me and I'll fulfill my promises. Isaac by this time is a very wealthy man. He has loads of sheep, he has loads of cattle, he has loads of servants. And he feels very vulnerable. You know that because he tries to pass off his wife uh, as his sister. He felt in danger. And yet God said, stay where you are. Trust me. And it's because of this trust, because of this lifestyle choice to trust, that Isaac gets his name in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. You know, when you choose to live by faith, which means, really, when you choose to take God at his word and trust him, it's incredibly tiring. It, it's like when you uh, go swimming and you're out of your depth. For a bit of time, it's fun, but after a while, it, it is very, very demanding. And it's tempting just to go in the shallow end where you're in control of everything. But a lifestyle following Jesus is exactly like this, and it is what... Jesus commends people for. It's what the whole of scripture loves to see. And you can see when you think about it, it's not an easy life, but it's God's way of life, to trust and obey. Well, that's the first couple of things that I've noticed about Isaac. Here's the second one, can be dealt with quicker. He didn't let his flaws floor him. He didn't let his flaws floor him. He's by no means perfect. You can see even within this chapter when he tried to deceive Abimelech, 
is a guy with lots of shortcomings. When people review the whole of his life, one of the criticisms is sometimes leveled against him is that he isn't really a good role model for parenting either. But these shortcomings don't mean that he can't be effective. And I just want to say to us, you know, we probably, when you look in the mirror, when you have uh, time on your own and think about it, there may be some things that get you down about your own life and the way you're doing it. Because all of us have imperfections. All of us live far from perfect lives. But that shouldn't mean that we kick ourselves into the wings and say that we're useless for God and that anything we do for him will be of no avail. Satan the accuser loves us to accuse ourselves and to put ourselves on the scrap heap. Or if it was a rugby game, into the sin bin and stay there. But God doesn't do that. So I'm just saying that so that we clock it imperfections don't rule us out but the third and final thing that Isaac does is what I consider his greatest achievement and it's tucked into verse 18 Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died very easy to skate over this verse but actually I don't want us to because Isaac grasped the huge problem and he also grasped the solution. The problem can easily be stated. Water was running out. It wasn't a trivial problem. It was a massive problem. They have a sustainability issue here. Without water, you die. And the Philistines had played rogue and had deliberately blocked up the wells that Abraham had dug. They'd play dirty. Now, it's Jesus himself who uses the picture of water and magnifies it and says, really, just as water is essential for living, so spiritual water is essential for spiritual life. And he says, doesn't he, to the woman at the well in Samaria, makes exactly that point. This water can satisfy your human thirst, but you need the Holy Spirit to satisfy the spiritual thirst that God has given to you and to me. And frankly, it's essential to go about the horrible and messy and really hard work of unblocking the wells that would release the Holy Spirit. And what I think is very significant, and I, I, I rather owe this point to a guy called Martin Lloyd-Jones who preached four sermons on this one verse some years ago. He's a, he points out that what Isaac didn't choose to do was to come up with an original solution. What he did choose to do was to invest in tried and tested solutions. He redug the wells that his father Abraham had excavated. And for that, he deserves his place amongst the giants. And it's not generally where I see my fellow Christians in the Church of England looking for a solution, and it's exactly where they should look, back to the scriptures, what's been tried and tested in the past. Stand at the crossroads and look, says Jeremiah, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. Or Isaiah, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. 
This is counterintuitive to our age. Our age really wants to grab at something new, grab at something that's never been done before, try and appeal on the fact that it's a new discovery, but that isn't what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, go to the tried and tested, look for where truth is, seek the Lord where he can be found and be obedient to him. You know, it, it would have been within the bounds of possibility and within his power for Isaac to say, hey, look, we really need to make peace with these Philistines. Why don't we open a dialogue? Why don't we take a bit of what they have to offer and merge it in with our society and we'll make it easier for them to live amongst us. They'll make it easier for us to live amongst them. Anything for a quiet life, a little bit of give and take. But he absolutely didn't do that. I think a church that decides to blend in with society around us will be like people who ride bicycles at night, all dressed in black and with no lights on. Just waiting to be run over, frankly. We're called by Jesus to do exactly the opposite, not to put on camouflage, but to put on fluorescence, to be distinct. We're to be salt in a tasteless society, aren't we? Light in a dark world. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do this. And it's actually the Holy Spirit that gives us the appetite for it in the first place. So, a simple question as I wrap up. What stands between us and being an open well? What stands between us? What's blocking the wells? Now, for some people, it might just be ignorance. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We didn't even know that God could come and change your heart. But I, I'm sus suspecting it amongst the people here in this building today, that's not the case. We're well informed. But here's a couple of other ways I think worlds get blocked. Somewhere along the line, we've detached two things that really belong together, and that is believing and behaving. We're sometimes quite good at talking about the need to come to Christ, but we're less good at talking about, and when you come to him and when you invite him to be Lord of your life, things are going to change in your life. Now that you belong to Christ, you have to live a Christ-like life. You can't say that you belong to Christ and go on living in that old lifestyle. No one who followed Christ has ever been successful about doing that. And I think the church loses its nerve. Not this church, but the church generally loses its nerve at this point and thinks if we make the demands too high, people won't want to worship Jesus. But Jesus was never shy about putting the demands really high because he said this is what a life that pleases God looks like. This is what you're called to. This is what you were created for. And paradoxically, though it's not the easiest life, it is the most fulfilling life you could possibly have. So one of the things that we need to do, each of us individually, is to make space not just to talk to God every day, but to give him permission to search the way we're doing life and to put his finger on a part of our life and say, this actually needs to change. This isn't compatible with my kingdom that I'm growing and building. And friends, this is going to go on every day of our life until we see Jesus face to face, all of us, because we are a work in progress. But we won't be making much progress unless we make space for this, and the well will be blocked up. 
Another reason I think that, um, well, it's allied to it, it, that the words get blocked up is because we've lost confidence, or we could lose confidence, that this kind of call to what the old-fashioned word is repentance, this kind of call to a different lifestyle doesn't sound too great. It, it sounds too demanding. And we lost confidence thinking that instead an easier life, a more comfortable life, a more popular life is the way to go. But that isn't the way the kingdom is built. Maybe we're beginning to see now why Isaac actually deserves his place in the pantheon of the greats. Because he chose really a quite difficult way of life. To unblock those wells was so unglamorous, such hard work, but it brought life to so many. When I look back, I've been following Christ now over 40 years. When I look back, actually, the pin-ups for me uh, are not necessarily the big characters that many people have heard of, though I'm very grateful for them. It is very often just the day-to-day, day-to-day faithfulness of people I've met in a congregation. Uh, I, I will, I think, always remember and quite early on in working in a church in Oxford, uh, being told to take the funeral of an elderly lady who I knew absolutely nothing about. So before uh, taking her funeral, I had to go and make some inquiries to try and get her, her life story. And her life story was that she was married to an absolute rogue. And the, the rogue who uh, was in the Navy uh, abandoned her and left her at home with a number of children to look after and didn't support her at all. And she didn't see him for years until in her old age and in his old age, he appeared on the doorstep very ill. And she had mercy on him and kindness for him and looked after him for his remaining days. And then he died and then he left all his possessions to some other woman in some other place. She was hard done by. She was wrongly dealt with. But she lived in, in what I came to understand was really quite a heroic Christian life because day in, day out, day in, day out, she faithfully, faithfully, faithfully did what she thought God was asking her to do. And no one will make a film of her life. And very few people will ever know her name. And she didn't talk about her story uh, in public at all. Why would she? But I think God looks down from heaven and says, you're faithful. God looks down from heaven and says, there was a well that was full of the Holy Spirit. And we can imagine that a community filled with people like that would be a shining community. So friends, as we wrap up, when we read the scriptures, you won't read ever that it, God is described as the God of Abraham and Jacob, there will always be this link man, Isaac. God's story would have stopped in its tracks without the rather pedestrian but faithful life of Isaac. And God's story will stop in its tracks without our rather faithful and sometimes pedestrian obedience to Jesus, just like that. Let's pray.